You're listening to the Hound Steve English podcast, a comfy place to talk about all the great and not so great parts of teaching ESL abroad. I'm Steve and I'm here with Madeline Grace. Hello. She's going to tell us about her life here in South Korea as an ESL teacher. Stay tuned. And before we get to talk to Madeline, let me go ahead and tell you about what's going on on Hound Steve English. If you go to our blog section, you should be able to see some pretty awesome free ESL materials for Halloween. So Halloween's coming up and a lot of you probably have to prepare some type of special class that either your public school students or your private students are really looking forward to. Um, we've gone ahead and we've made a few different types of Halloween games that you can just download, print and cut up and it should be you know, a big stress reliever when you're trying to prepare. So go there, check it out. If you like it, join us for a month, and it's 10 bucks a month, and we really appreciate your contributions, and we'll spend that hard-earned cash um, making more awesome stuff. All right, Madeline. Hello. Thanks again for coming on. It's pretty awesome to have you on here. No, thank you so much for inviting me. So we usually like to find out every ESL teacher story from beginning very, very beginning to end. So I guess, could you tell us uh, about where you're from and how did you discover ESL teaching when you were there? Uh, so I am from the DC metro area in the USA. And um, my, my journey to ESL is actually a little weird and straightforward uh when i was in first grade i met a student teacher and i was like oh, that's what i want to do i want to be a teacher which is ironic because my mother was a math teacher all of her family are teachers and my dad's a museum director um but i didn't know like what i wanted to teach i was just like teacher that's it um and then i got really into art so i kind of detoured away from teaching for a while until university when the art education uh, coordinator came over to me and was like, you're a really good teacher, you should teach. So I started to do um, like art classes for autistic and um, mentally handicapped uh, adults. And then that kind of led into starting to teach ESL. And then I decided to go back to school and I got a master's degree in curriculum design for English language learners. And then I ended up coming to Korea because in the US, um, and my mom and all of my aunts and uncles warned me about this, is teacher burnout in the US is real and it's a big problem. And because I really do love teaching, they didn't want me to have the same burnout problems. So. They were like, just go anywhere, like, get your feet wet, see what you want, make sure this is really what you want to do with your life. So that's how I ended up here. Is there a big difference between teacher burnout in the United States and teacher burnout here in South Korea? Um, it's, it's a different type of burnout. So I feel like the teacher burnout in the States, because I did teach um, as a, a middle school literature teacher in the states for about a year um is that when you're in the u.s you're burnt out because of all of the pressures and regulations and lack of everything 
um, which is a little bit similar to Korea in terms of sometimes teachers don't know where to get resources or how to get resources. But I feel like in Korea, it's it's more about the burnout is more not being able to work within a system that is unfamiliar and not being able to adjust your perceptions to that system. I feel like that's the most common um at least burnout that I see with teachers is like, well, in America, well, back home. And I'm just like, but you're not back home. So you got to either make it work <laughs> or walk away. Yeah, that sounds very, very familiar. I have to admit, <laughs> I get into that mindset about once or twice a week. Um, you know, we have How and Steve English, the website, and we give a stab at making some lessons and curriculum for um, ESL teachers in public schools without any resources. And you just mentioned that you have a degree in curriculum design. I do. I It's it's specifically curriculum design for English language learners. So uh, I basically take, I have a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree in photography and design. And I take all of that artistic, think outside the box knowledge. And I try to find ways to make ESL lessons just more engaging and more practical and less rote memorization, which I feel like is the most common Korean standard. Yeah, I, I guess that's basically the tradition of education, uh, perhaps in Japan and Korea, is, is rote memorization. So Kat mentioned that as well. She's really passionately uh, motivated by just the traditional rote memorization style hagwans. I guess, did that get to you too? Yeah, because I was like, um, I was helping a student who was working um, on, I believe, I want to say the, the TOEFL test. And she brought me her book and we were going over the vocabulary. And one of the words was spelunking. And I was like, well, do you know what this word means? And she goes, no. I was like, do you know what a cave is? <laughs> and I was like explaining to her, like, it's a, it's when you go into a cave and you explore it and all this other stuff. And I was like, what is the point of having this word, spelunking, which is totally random, and you can't even use it because you don't know what it actually means. Like, that to me is so pointless. I don't get it. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I'm very similar in that way. <laughs> when you, do you make any of your own curriculum or any of your own lessons nowadays? I make a hundred percent of what I teach. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, it's kind of so. <laughs> that kind of segues into the bajillion things that I'm doing right now. But um, I actually teach in the mornings. I teach an advanced class uh, for middle schoolers at a middle school. It, for my regular nine to five, I'm teaching at high school. Then I teach <laughs> kindergartners. At an academy, and then I teach adults who work for the province uh, in the evenings. So that's a lot of material, <laughs> but I basically teach everything that I make. When we're done with this, I'm going to have to ask for your honest opinions on our material, <laughs> and I'm going to be, I'm going to be ready. I'm going to wear some armor for that. I try. So- I, I try not to be too judgmental. I'm, I'm much harsher on myself than I am on other people. Don't worry. Well, that's good. You have a master's degree in it, so you're the expert. 
Um, I'm really curious about you know, what goes into the curriculum that you make, how you decide what you're going to give students. And then I'm really interested in your opinion on some of the traditional curriculums that you see at Korean English academies. So there's really good stuff, like kind of just tried and true books like Let's Go or Get Smart. And then there's just really wonky stuff that somebody like got an American English textbook, chopped it up and threw it into a book to sell it here on the market. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I feel like, at least for me, my starting place is always um, what age are the students now? What are their current interests? And what are they learning elsewhere? Um, because I want everything to actually have a place in their life. I don't want to just teach them English for nothing. That would be pointless. So, uh, for example, with my high school students, um, they are using the internet to connect to people in other countries. They're learning a lot about um, political issues and science and all of those things. So, I try to at least keep those themes and then find a way to kind of bring the vocabulary down to their level so that they can learn how to start talking about it in English and then slowly build. So every, it's almost like a making a puzzle where the first year that they're with me, we start building the puzzle. And then the second year that they're with me, uh, we start just filling in, you know, outside the, you know, the middle part of the border. So I try to make everything build on top of each other. If we're going to learn one thing, we're going to learn it. And maybe we don't have time this year. So I'm going to break it into two pieces. And then next year, we're going to do the adva more advanced version of it. And I'm okay taking that time to like, step back and say, you know what, we, we did enough. You've got the basics. Let's move on to something else for a little bit. And then we'll come back and we'll revisit this and see if you actually got it. So, um, which Korean textbooks don't do. <laughs> they just plow ahead as fast as possible. Um, and there's no focus on, did you actually acquire the knowledge about whatever it was you were learning? And so I feel like, at least in our province, Jelanamdo, they've been redoing all the curriculums. So... We have new middle school textbooks, and I'm not exactly sure what they are, but the high school, like high school English one, high school English two, high school English reading, are not only completely impractical for their daily lives, but uh, they have to do parts one and two in one year. And it's too much. It's just too much material. I feel like that's the biggest pitfall of most of these books is there's too much material and not enough explanation of how it actually works together. That's really great. That's something I noticed as well, especially, you know, you need exposure, practice or experience four to five times to really solidify a concept in your mind. Right. And yeah. there's no review in any of those books. There's no, Oh, here's the present simple rule for weekly habits. And 
and six months later we're gonna see present simple again with the rule for general truths or um, you know permanent situations you don't see it revisited really ever it's just the kids memorize it and then forget it and um that can be really frustrating so i totally get i think it's great that you're making a ton of your own curriculum yeah do you have any of it for sale for us that we can go buy (laughs) um actually i do i've started to look into teachers pay teachers and putting some stuff up um i think right now i just have a series of lessons uh we were talking about like different personality types so which the fact it it's amazing when students start to break down like what is my personality i don't think a lot of students have ever thought about it <laughs> so it's a really fun lesson because they get to know themselves and they get to know like the other students in their class better and then they realize like oh you know, sometimes I do like to be, you know, in a quiet room by myself reading a book. And that's okay. Oh, that's great to see that little realization go on. I think I got a little bit of a gap here. Are you there? Yeah, yeah. I was checking. I'm connected. Everything's good. So sorry. Uh, I don't know what no happened. No worries. Yeah. If anything happens, just I'm gonna. I'll delete this little segment. Just keep on talking. Just yeah. Oh, no by worries. The way, I went to the market today, and so, <laughs> don't worry. Sounds um, good. So, I guess I'll pick up again from here. Yeah. So I got a little sidetracked because I'm so interested in curriculum design myself. But when you came over here, how did you find your first job? And what was the process like? And then what was your first day arriving in the airport like? Um, originally, I was supposed to go to China. <laughs> but I was too young. You had to be 24 and I was only 23. Uh, so I couldn't get a work visa and I got rerouted actually, um, like two weeks before I was supposed to leave, which was interesting. Uh, I found my job just by default. The company that had hired me to work in China ended up, um, being like, we have this school in Gwangju, South Korea. Do you want to take it? Cause they didn't want to lose their, their recruitment fee. And I needed a a job I had already quit my job in the States so um, the first airport arrival was I was just exhausted uh, it was six o'clock in the evening and I was that fortunate passenger who was next to the most chatty Kathy man I've ever met in my life so I didn't get sleep at all and then I arrive at the airport, my director picks me up, and he's like, oh, you're fatter than I expected. Oh, wow. That's terrible. <laughs> I was just like, well, that didn't go the way that I expected. I was working um, at that time for an academy. Um, yeah, I was like, yeah, this is the best greeting. Thanks, I think. <laughs> so... 
But yeah, I just, I went through a recruitment agency the first time around and uh, very quickly learned that they do not always care where you go as long as they get paid. So. That's really true. I, I kind of was a little bit shocked or surprised if anybody listened to my original story, my, my recruiter promised me a lot and then when I came here the contract was so different um what was really different between what the recruiter promised you or what the recruiter said and what you ended up getting involved in uh it said I would have solo housing I shared with another person it said I was gonna get health pension the whole shebang the things that you're supposed to get uh didn't get that And then after working for about two and a half months, I got transferred to another city, (laughs) Uh, which happened to be Mokpo. So I'm really grateful now because obviously, you know, I'm married and I live here now. But uh, yeah, so I ended up not even working at the school, the whole China debacle, like you knew my age, but you still tried to get me this job. It was, yeah. Uh, yeah. So what what year was that when you first came over here to Korea? 2013. So I worked in the States. I was working as a, a part-time school photographer as well as a uh, substitute, like a permanent sub um, for middle school English literature classes. So I had a full year of like legitimate work experience before I before I came to Korea. I didn't just jump out of university and head over. And what year was that? Was that 2013? Okay. Wow, so yeah, we came over about the same times actually. Yeah, it's uh it, I feel like that that year I brought quite a few people. I've met I've met Many people who either came in 2012, 2013, or 2014, so. So you said the first place you went was a hagwon that transferred you in two months to Mokpo. Yes. So what city were you in originally? Gwangju. So Gwangju, uh-huh. the independent city in Jeollanam-do, yeah. And what type of hagwon was it? Was it like one of the big premier hagwons? Was it a small kind of seedy, struggling hagwon? No, it was... At the time uh, that I was hired, it was actually one of the largest in its neighborhood. It had two partner campuses, um, one in Mokpo, one in a different part of Gwangju. We had six native English teachers at just that academy, um, it was a, it was three floors on the top of one of the highest buildings in the area. Um, it had a kindergarten program with its entire floor. Like it was, it was huge. It was a very large academy. Um, I think that's kind of like people's dream when they come here to work with that many other foreign teachers. <laughs> I mean, it was definitely, it was definitely interesting working with that many people, because there were different layers of discontentment that I picked up on almost immediately of uh, there were like one or two who had been here for a while and just really liked Korea and um, 
there was one who couldn't wait for her contract to finish because she was, I mean, she was less than six months in and already talking about going home and how excited she was. So I, I ended up actually falling more on the side of, I had a lot more Korean teacher friends than even, um, not the, the Wanaman native teacher friends, just because, uh, sometimes the energy was just so dark and I was new and I just didn't, I didn't want to be in that kind of dark space when I had first gotten there. That's a really good point. I don't think anybody's talked about that. Um, on here yet, but there are a lot of jaded, angry teachers here. And it always surprises me because I'm like, this is not the only country available. You can go anywhere you want. It, you are not trapped here. So I'm always surprised at how many like super jaded teachers stay because I'm like, you have the ability to go. You are, you are not locked to this country. Um, and yet, they stay here for anywhere from 5 to 20 years and complain the entire time. So you got a really sneak preview into that particular subset when you first came. What was the major complaint, I guess, from those people? What was the major thing that they were so upset about and then how did you navigate around that since you've been here <laughs> uh i mean i heard complaints about everything there was one girl she couldn't she hated korean food like hated korean food uh it's too spicy it's too sour it's too everything um which was easy for me to get around because i cook and I'm happy to eat by myself. So I just was like, oh, it's okay. I'm going to just, you know, save some money and eat at home. Because I'm new and I need to save money. Which was a perfect excuse to not go out with her and hear her complain about food. Um, the other was about... Um, Korean culture in general. She, she didn't like... Korean men, she didn't like Korean society, her boyfriend didn't like the country and how the road, like, it, it was every, it was a little bit of everything, so I just, I did the put on, you know, put on your professional face, go to work, be pleasant, but not overly friendly, and then take off the face when you walk out the door and go about your business and just just live your life because I just I was so scared that if I if I got really close to them and if I stayed close to them it would bring down my whole experience because I'd just be influenced constantly by this negativity so when I woke up I did my own thing I went for walks I ate I did whatever I wanted. I went to work. I put on a smile. I was friendly and nice. And here, can I help you? And then I took it off after work and I just went home. So I just had to shut it down. I think that's really good advice that any 
teacher going to a foreign country should really listen to. Whenever you're in a foreign country and you first arrive, there's going to be a lot of disgruntled expats. And it's going to be a combination of cultural differences and they're just getting older. So old people like to complain. I know I'm getting older. I like to complain. Um, you just got to really avoid that when you first go into a new country. Like you said, I think you've got to have a completely open mind. Yeah, it's not even to say that their experiences aren't valid or, you know, I, I say this a lot and I really do mean it to people is that not every country is going to work for every person. And maybe you love living and working in a different country, but maybe the work culture or the societal culture of this country is not a good match for you. And that's okay. You can, you can say, I had this experience, I learned a lot, and you can move forward and on from that. But I feel like a lot of people just get stuck in that negativity. So I, I usually tell people who are like, oh, how did you do it? Well, you know, I want to do that. I'm like, do your research first. And remember, you're not going to a place like home. <laughs> because if you want to go to a place like home, you might as well just stay home. That's really good advice for the new teachers out there. Do you have any advice for the old grumps? Because I guess <laughs> um, you've been here since 2013 so and you've managed to stay happy. So you're kind of crossing that threshold into a long-term expat. Yeah. How, how do you tell these other grumpy expats to get over it? Um, I usually, when I'm talking to them, a lot of the, a lot of the disgruntled nature is tied up in some form of, uh, of discontentment, whether that's language barrier, society, culture, food, what have you. So for me, I'm just, I fall into that category of, I'm always looking, how can I make something better? I'm unhappy because I can't communicate with anybody. Okay. Maybe it's worth taking five minutes out of every single day and learning Korean, even if it takes you forever. At least you're moving forward with that. Um, I don't like Korean food. Well, Korean food is incredibly diverse and there's so many options and I can guarantee you haven't tried all of them. So I, I usually just tell the, uh, just don't blanket everything. <laughs> You know, there's, there's so many new experiences, even for people who are going around the block for the hundredth time. You know, there's always a change in the sky. The grass is not going to be the same color every time. The lighting's going to change. The people on that block are going to change. And you just have to remember that, like, this is one of the greatest experiences and you only live once. What is the point of living once if you are going to be miserable for most of it? <laughs> to me, that just doesn't make sense. I would rather fight Excellent. to be happy than like allow myself to stay miserable. That's a perfect way to put it. I think new teachers and our grumpy old teachers really can learn a lot from this, this episode <laughs> of the podcast. I'm also just naturally so, like a positive person, so it might be a little harder for some than others. 
then we just got to do this again. We got to do a few more podcast episodes until it sinks in. <laughs> so we go from Guangzhou and we get transferred to Mokpo. And was was this new academy Mokpo any different than the big three-story kindergarten academy in uh, Guangzhou? Or was it about the same? It was smaller, but it had very similar elements. So it still had a kindergarten program. Um, but everything was on a much smaller scale. So there were only uh, four native teachers, two of which were basically just for kindergarten. Um, The class sizes were smaller. So even though it was still a large academy and part of a chain, uh, it definitely was a lot smaller. So... Uh, it meant that it was much it was much busier in a lot of ways because there weren't enough people to kind of pick up the slack if someone you know took a vacation day or something but I would say medium probably is the best way to describe it like a, a medium chain academy that was doing decently well and so you were in your third or fourth month when you arrived there. Yeah. And you're coming from the United States with this curriculum design in language learning uh, degree. Did you start to notice some holes or some some aspects of the education system here that you really wanted to change? Day one. Oh my gosh, I was flipping through textbooks and... Because I was curious, like, what am I going to teach? What are they going to learn? How can I supplement materials? I'm like flipping through textbooks and I'm like, oh my gosh, spelling error. Oh my gosh, grammatical error. Oh my gosh, more spelling errors. That doesn't even make sense. And I was like, does no one proofread these books? (laughs) So for a while I was like, dang, can I just be a proofreader? Because there are so many mistakes in these books. And yet... I have, you know, 80 kids using them. What is the point? <laughs> like, it, it was crazy to me. It was absolutely nuts. Were you seeing any big gaps between the level of the children and the level of the books that you were using? Um, in some cases, I did. So, most of the leveling up issues that I had were because parents complained. Well, my son tested into this level at this academy and assumed that everything is apples to apples when maybe it's not. So you get a student who wasn't even ready in the first place got pushed through the last textbook to catch up and is now in a book that he just can't understand because or textbooks that are talking about topics they haven't even talked about in school yet I think that was my biggest pet peeve was we would talk about international geography and they haven't even studied that country in their native language yet and it was just an uphill you know battle to even get basic understanding 
did you end up making your own material at that time or did you wait a few years i wasn't allowed academies? i wasn't allowed why is that <sighs> because the director was very set in his ways this is the way we do it these are the books i was allowed to add like small things but he would have rathered me play the cd 20 times in a row over me creating something supplemental to do wow you just gave me flashbacks to the to the cd based listening class oh my gosh. didn't understand anything oh my gosh i was like how many times can we sing this song that they don't like and they barely understand before we can stop it makes no sense to me at all because let's as an be academy owner now just oh i'm sorry go no ahead. i was gonna say it's like let's be realistic with our expectations of class middle schoolers don't want to sing boring songs about colors <laughs> you had middle schoolers singing the color song yes These wild stories of hogwans, and I remember my own experience with hogwans. I can't imagine how they keep their students because as an academy owner now, I field so many requests and so many complaints from parents every week. And I just compare them to my own experience and, you know, an experience like a teacher like you at these academies. And I think, how can they keep their kids? What's going on inside those buildings? There's got to be a... Uh like a magic formula of of how this works because I mean the advantage for me is I've worked I've worked private I've worked public um so I've seen both sides of the coin where schools assume academies are going to do something and academies of schools assume that schools are going to do something and all it does is make these huge gaps that are completely unnecessary and yet parents think that they're getting this well-rounded perfectly balanced system so what happens is or at least what i have been able to find in in several cases is that hogwans are telling parents well we don't cover that because that's something the school does we just go over it and that keeps the peace because then the parent calls the homeroom teacher and is like why isn't my daughter doing better at this test i talked to her academy teacher and all it does is push it back onto the schools and the schools can't do anything about it either because they're assuming that the academy was going to fix it and it just goes in this vicious cycle so, you know, academies are blaming the public schools, rightfully so at some points, uh, not so much at others. And it just keeps the cycle alive of, well, you need academy because the school is failing you. See, your, your child wasn't doing as well as you thought, so we'll help them. And I'm just like, it, it can get vicious. And it's all because it's part of business. It's not about education. Can you talk a little bit about that last point? Business versus education? <laughs> uh, yeah. So something that 
I have never believed in, and maybe this is because I grew up in a, a very education-based family, is that the value of education is paramount to just about anything else. You know, your knowledge is something that can never be taken away from you. You have that forever. And so coming to Korea, it was kind of like cold water over my face because all of a sudden I realized that it had nothing to do with teaching. It, it was like, um, it was like the most elaborate play I've ever watched where all it was about was putting on the facade of understanding or putting on the mask of, of, of uh, with tests and, oh, look at what score my child got and, oh, look at what level they tested into. Those are, those are business practices. When you have to constantly tout, look how great I am. Look how great our students are. Those are business tactics. When you have students who are comfortable and confident and uh, able to do output, they speak for themselves because all of a sudden they're doing better in classes. They're getting higher scores naturally. Parents start taking notice and going, where are they studying? And it, it kind of is this very, very strange, I don't understand moment of like, if you are constantly having to tell people, we're great, we have these great classes, our students are amazing, we do all of these things. I understand it's a business you need to market yourself. But do you really have to like scream it when if you're really doing a good job, your students are literally going to scream for you. And to me, that's the difference between focusing on the business side and focusing on like the true, why are we even here? We're here to teach side. So you've been here for, I think, six years and... What you just said, I've seen everywhere. I've seen in every academy. I've seen in every subject. I've seen at every level of public school, even university, even my adult students. Um, it's the idea that the, I guess, the show of learning or the appearance of learning is more important than actual learning. If that sums up what you've said. Yeah, but, and I mean, even... Even into adulthood, you know, my husband just took the public servant exam and he passed, luckily. But it, it has. Yeah, thank you. But even that has nothing to do with education. He was actually sitting there practicing for the English test, going, This is pointless. This is useless. Why is this here? This isn't important. Because it was all about showing what you know whether you actually understand it or not and even he started to get frustrated because he was like this has no value to me outside of this test and what is the point of teaching things that only have value on a piece of paper that only matters once in your life well and it seems like it ties into what you said and what many other people have said too about road memorization which is um, as a technique, it really doesn't get to be applied 
many places except for an exam. It's not going to lend itself very well to experience and to real life situations. So, do you see that tether there between rote memorization and nowhere to go with that basic way of teaching? So it's just test focused. Yeah, because you know students walk away with no problem solving skills. You know they they walk away with absolutely no idea how to work to find solutions. They have no idea how to work with other people. They have no idea how to think and find the information for themselves. You know, they just memorize and they look and they go and they do. So what can one of these ESL teachers at an academy do to really make themselves and make their education style work inside that system. Always work with your students' interests. So, even if you're teaching something that your student doesn't really think is interesting, there are always going to be elements that you can use within whatever that topic is to help encourage some sort of participation and understanding in a more natural way. So rather than, I know there are some academies that are using like English science books. You know, a lot of students don't like science, but you can take that idea of science and experiment. And instead of phrasing it as we're gonna do this experiment today, we're gonna play this game. And we have to create it. And let's see what happens. And it's changing how you say it or how you approach it, even in small ways, that could be the key to unlocking a million possibilities for these students because you're going to re-peak their interest that may have been lost. And you mentioned that and I guess we're getting a little bit long in the tooth here. Um, we went from this hagwon that you worked at in Moko, and you said you had some public school jobs as well. Yeah. yeah. Were you able to create any curriculum at any of these places yet? Because I know now you create all of your lessons and all your material, but when were you able to finally create your material the way you wanted to make it and to teach the way that you wanted to teach? 2015 at my first high school in Yosu. That was um, that was the first time because I was given no direction except this is the conversation class and this is the textbook they use and I was able to actually sit down and be like okay what do I want to do how am I going to get there and I've been very fortunate that. Essentially, since 2015, I've been able to, you know, kind of do my own thing and push forward. So I guess we're hitting around that time, unfortunately, where we both have to depart. (laughs) But is there a way that people can get in touch with you or stay in touch with you and talk about, you know, how you teach and your teaching philosophies? Because especially since you make your own curriculum, I bet there are a lot of people (laughs) who'd be interested in chatting with you. Yeah. So, um, I would say the easiest, uh, the easiest way would be 
to just look me up on Facebook, Madeline Grace. Uh, I am searchable. Uh, or, I mean, I also have um, my Teachers Pay Teachers, and I you can always email me, maddie.wonderlick at gmail.com. So, those are all ways that I am, I am accessible. And ways that I check frequently enough that I will get back to you within a 24-hour period. Awesome. And we didn't get to touch on your later years here. We kind of stuck on that first year or two. <laughs> um, is there any advice that you'd like to give to everybody or anybody listening in general about this experience of teaching ESL and being abroad? Yeah, just... Remember that sometimes things are not about you. And sometimes the bigger picture really is the more important one. And you just got to push your feelings to the side and, and keep moving forward. That would be my biggest advice. Madeline Grace, thanks for the positivity and thanks for sharing your story on here. <laughs> no problem. I'm glad we got to chat. All right. We'll have to do it again. Like I keep saying to everybody. We keep getting <laughs> off too early <laughs> well, all right see you guys yeah